0: my name is Cambria and I wanted to tell you about Joseph. This is about the Joseph in the left half of your Bible, not the right half. There is a lot to cover and Pastor Rick will actually be teaching us about him for the next eight weeks. Joseph's story is really a story about when life gets tough and we go through hard things. It is very easy to get sad, mad, and react badly. When those things happen to us, the question we get to ask ourselves is do we respond or react when those hard things happen? When we trust that God has a plan for those hard things, we get to respond with faith. We aren't always responsible for those things that happen but we are always responsible for the choices we make in those times. Today, Pastor is teaching on dysfunctional families. That means there are problems in their family. And forgiveness. I have an awesome family, but Joseph did not. I have two sisters and I like them, most of the time. Joseph had 10 half-brothers and one full brother. They did not like him at all. They actually hated him and did terrible things to him. He had to choose if he would react in anger or respond in faith. I bet he was tempted to just give up. Forgiveness is hard for everyone. Today, we get to see how Joseph chose to trust God and forgive his family. Over the next eight weeks, we will learn a lot, but it will be way more fun than learning school. Thank you for being a part of this Joseph series. Now let's hear it from Pastor Rick.
1: Not bad for 10 years old, huh? Not not bad for any years old. Cambria did a great job. So we're starting a series today on the life of Joseph, and many of you have heard of Joseph before. Um, I grew up in church, I know not all of you grew up in church. Maybe you've only seen the life of Joseph from animated cartoons, from uh, some kind of video or or film put out by Hollywood. Maybe it's just sort of things that you've heard from people and gleaned along the way. Um, Wherever you are, I think by the end of the eight weeks that we spend together, you're going to know a lot about the life of Joseph and i grew up i have great memories of learning the stories of joseph particularly with his multicolored bathrobe and i'm sitting in a semicircle in a little classroom and a little church back in the day and had a nice little old lady who was teaching me with a flannel graph and putting the pictures on the board of joseph and the brothers and and she would throw out little animal crackers and little goldfish you know to feed us and i just have good memories of it not everybody has those memories but i'm going to challenge you today to pretend for a second that you don't really know a lot about the story that you're just learning this for the first time I'm going to challenge you to put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of Joseph and think through life from his perspective the Old Testament is something really important now the Old Testament for those who don't know a lot about the Bible as Cambria mentioned is on the left hand side of the Bible not the right hand side of the Bible it's the old part not the new part but it's still the Word of God I believe that The Old Testament, just like the New Testament, is scripture, and I believe that all scripture is true, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it was given to human authors who wrote it down with their own personality and sometimes their own experiences, but it's all true and that it's um, the sole authority for what we believe and what we do. Now, the Old Testament is true just like the New Testament. The New Testament is applicable to all of our lives all of the time. The Old Testament is not always applicable to our lives or at least every part of the Old Testament because some of the Old Testament are specific stories or promises made to specific people but still teaches us the nature and character of God, still teaches us to look forward to Jesus, at least they did. We look back toward the event of Jesus and our personal relationship with him and it gives us, as you'll see, well, it gives us optimism, it gives us hope. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul wrote. About the Old Testament and we'll start our series um, for the next eight weeks with this passage for everything that was written in the past now in the past is the Old Testament everything that was written in the past it was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope so you see the two things the Apostle Paul told us to be on the lookout for with the Old Testament. He said, first of all, it teaches us endurance. Now, how does it teach us endurance? It teaches us endurance by looking at the lives of people who had enduring faith. What's that mean? I hope you would ask that question. It doesn't matter if you do or don't because I'm still gonna answer it. It means that people had uh, faith that overcame circumstances that would blow your mind. Unfair things happened, bad things happened, tragic things happened, unexpected things happened, but yet there were people who continued to be faithful not because of the circumstances, in spite of the circumstances, and they had a rock solid faith. I want that kind of faith, you want that kind of faith. Sometimes life doesn't make sense, it doesn't seem fair, but yet there are people in the past, and people in our lives, people even among us today, who hang on, who persevere, who endure, and so one of the things that we get from the Old Testament, one of the benefits, is the fact that it teaches us to endure, and it teaches us how faithful God is, and it also gives us encouragement that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he always keeps his promises, that he has a plan for our lives, that he hadn't forgotten about us, and that each and every one of us have a purpose, and that we're here on purpose. Now, let's all gather around this one principle before we dive in, and… Um, I want to make sure we can get all of our heads nodding for just a second. And if you don't want to nod your head, at least listen to me and, you know, I hope you can agree with this on some very fundamental level. You are necessary. You are intentional. And God has a purpose for you. And even the fact that you're here right now is no accident. You're intentional. You're necessary, and God has a purpose for you. And it's not an accident that you're here right now. And stories like this help us discover our purpose by looking at the life of a person who went through everything anyone could even imagine. I mean, tremendous success, tremendous failure, temptation, false charges, imprisonment, elevated to the highest levels of the land and then finally had his brothers who offended him and wounded him in his sights, in the scope, in front of the car, but yet chose not to accelerate, to pull the trigger, to avenge himself. Uncommon faith in a common life. That's what I want said about me. It's what I want said about you. We're gonna look today at the beginning of this story and the beginning of this story starts with a family dysfunction that will blow your minds. Every family is a little bit dysfunctional. Some put the fun in dysfunctional. Some are just dysfunctional dysfunctional. This family is no different. The story of Joseph begins with the story of his dad as do many of our stories. His dad Jacob was known as Jacob the deceiver and Jacob was not always a good man. Now you can go way back and you can talk about Jacob's dad and Jacob's grandfather and Jacob's great-great-grandfather. We don't have the time to do that today. But what we do have the time to do is to at least pick up in Jacob's life when he was working for a man who would be his father-in-law named Laban. And when you marry into a family of shady people and you're already a shady person, well, you can just imagine you're gonna have a shady relationship and potentially shady kids. Somebody has to break the cycle. He's working for a man who was shady. And and Jacob had a, a woman that he loved. It was one of Laban's daughters. Her name was Rachel. And he thought she was really attractive. And then she had a sister, not quite so attractive, wasn't really interested. But Laban being a practical man needed to get them both hitched. And so Jacob made a deal with Laban. They shook on it, and he said, I will work for you for seven years if you give me Rachel, because she's the one I want to marry. And Laban said, Deal. (laughs) And they shook, I don't know if they spit, but they shook hands with each other. And he worked seven years. Can you imagine working seven years for your wife? Some of you are like, Yeah, easy. And some of you are like, Forget it. I want to work seven days. Don't testify that's where you find yourself this morning. He worked seven years. Now, they veiled, this was dirty pool, man. They veiled their women back in the day, on the day of the wedding. You know how there's a superstition today? You can't see your bride on the day of the wedding? Well, you couldn't even see your bride when you were at the altar, you know, in the moments before your wedding because they were covered up and shrouded in a veil. And so after seven years, the wedding finally comes. He thinks he's gonna get Rachel and they open the veil after the marriage is done. And surprise, it's the not so attractive sister Leah, who he has married and said, I do. So they, you know, were together. And the only thing the Bible could say about her was she had kind eyes. <laughs> like, that's not the one you want to marry. It's like, ah, you know, she had nice eyes. She wasn't best looking girl and didn't have the greatest personality, but she, she was kind in her eyes. So he looked at her and he's like, well, I got what I got, but it's not what I want. So he looked at Laban and he said, how about seven more years? And Laban said, game on. He worked another seven years. Got the wife of his dreams, Rachel. Tension happened. It arose because Leah was just cranking out babies like crazy. Rachel couldn't have any babies. Back in the day, if a woman couldn't have babies, it was a big deal. They usually blamed it on the woman. Rachel prayed, God, give me a baby, give me a baby, give me a baby. And finally, the Bible says God remembered her. And what that really means is that God answered her prayers because it was God's time and he gave her a baby. And guess who that baby was? Joseph. Everything was great for a moment so Jacob went to Laban and he's like hey I worked for you for 20 years it's time for me to go to my homeland the land of my people we call it the promised land Canaan we got to go and Laban said all right I get it and then on the way out and you've got to read this story it's in Genesis there are all kinds of great stories in Genesis on the way out they tried to trick each other to cheat each other out of stuff and land animal it's really funny it's a funny story not funny haha but funny and dysfunction and diabolical and off Jacob goes with Leah, half dozen boys, one girl, Rachel, one son. Aha, she's pregnant. So here comes another baby. Everything's great. They're on the way to the promised land. Rachel goes into labor. She dies in childbirth. But out comes son number two. So Joseph has a full brother. He's got a whole bunch of half-brothers and a sister And then the concubines, his dad's special friends, which was only allowed back in the day, not today, they had some babies. They had a whole bunch. There were a whole bunch of brothers. So they arrive at a land called Shechem. And then Shechem is important because one of the most messed up things in all of Genesis happens in Shechem. The Prince of Shechem, which would be kind of a cool title. I don't know how big Shechem was, but he was like, I'm the Prince of Shechem. He looked good on a business card and stuff, um, decided that he wanted the sister for his own so he took her and she wasn't consenting he didn't care and he committed a crime against her so the brothers weren't gonna allow this to go without well repercussions so they devised a plan and I'm not gonna tell you about the plan today because it takes too much time you've got to read this plan it's messed up if we made it into a movie You and I would probably not go see it because it wouldn't be appropriate. So anyway, they ride down and they kill every person they even think could possibly be responsible for raping their sister. They take all their stuff, some of their women and children. Again, it was a messed up time and a different day. And they go back to Jacob who's settling in this land. So you have two tragedies. You have the death of Rachel. You have the rape of a sister, the murder of a village. Even if it was justified, still... Caused political tension. And then the Bible says that Reuben, the oldest son, decided that he kind of liked one of his dad's special friends. And so he started having relations with her. And so you add incest to the mix. And then you look at Jacob, who was a passive parent, who had these two young sons in his old age. Now I get why God gives children most of the time to young men because little babies take all kinds of energy. And when you get to be my age, you don't have as much energy as you do when you're 25 or 30. But he had these two babies in his old age. And one of the themes about his parenting is that he was distant, that he was passive, that he just trusted that things would work out. And he created a dysfunction in his family that spun out of control. Now, I want you to listen to this chapter of scripture right now instead of me reading it to you and you got to listen carefully because this sets the stage for where we're going to be today and we don't have a lot of time left to apply this and to land this plane so listen with me
2: Genesis chapter 37 this is the story of Joseph Joseph was 17 years old at the time that we find him helping out his brothers and herding the flocks These were his half-brothers, actually, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. And Joseph brought his father bad reports on them. Israel, his father, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the child of his old age. And he made him an elaborately embroidered coat. When his brothers realized that their father loved him more than them, they grew to hate him. They wouldn't even speak to him. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers they hated him even more he said listen to this dream i had we were all out in the field gathering bundles of wheat all of a sudden my bundle stood straight up and your bundles circled around it and bowed down to mine his brothers said so you're going to rule us you're going to boss us around and they hated him even more than ever because of his dreams and the way he talked he had another dream and told this one also to his brothers I dreamed another dream. The sun and moon and eleven stars bowed down to me. When he told it to his father and brothers, his father reprimanded him. What's with all this dreaming? Am I and your mother and your brothers all supposed to bow down to you? Now his brothers were really jealous. But his father brooded over the whole business. His brothers had gone off to Shechem, where they were pasturing their father's flocks. Israel said to Joseph, Your brothers are with the flocks in Shechem. Come, I want to send you to them. Joseph said, I'm ready. He said, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring me back a report. He sent him off from the Valley of Hebron to Shechem. They spotted him off in the distance. By the time he got to them, they had cooked up a plot to kill him. The brothers were saying, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these old cisterns. We can say that a vicious animal ate him up. We'll see what his dreams amount to. Reuben heard the brothers talking and intervened to save him. We're not going to kill him, no murder. Go ahead and throw him into the cistern out here in the wild, but but don't hurt him. Reuben planned to go back later and get him out and take him back to his father. When Joseph reached his brothers, they ripped off the fancy coat he was wearing, grabbed him and threw him into a cistern. The cistern was dry, there wasn't any water in it. Then they sat down to eat their supper. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way from Gilead, their camels loaded with spices, ointments, and perfumes to sell in Egypt. Judah said, Brothers, what are we going to get out of killing our brother and concealing the evidence? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let's not kill him. He is, after all, our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. By that time, the Midianite traders were passing by. His brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern. And sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph with them down to Egypt.
1: So, I want to point out a couple of things to you that you just heard and illustrate the fact that many families are dysfunctional, but this particular family was really, really dysfunctional. Let's look here at an offense that happened to joseph in genesis 37 now israel loved joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him and when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him let's move on all families are dysfunctional can you imagine having your brothers hate you, maybe you can. Maybe some of you had a family that was filled with hate. Maybe you had people hatching plots of vengeance against you. Maybe you have relationships where you can't even get together at Christmas or Thanksgiving without fear of violence or at least raised voices. But this family started badly and ended even worse. And I believe that we have to take from this the challenge and the responsibility that as adults, as parents, as grandparents, as aunts, as uncles, as people who have influence in the lives of kids who are younger than us, to make sure that we do our very best to stop dysfunction. Oftentimes we blame the way we were raised, or we blame people from our past about the way that things turned out or the reason that we are the way we are. And even as adults in our 50s and 60s and 40s, we still look at our parents and say that it's all their fault. With my boys, I told them when they got out of the house and kind of left and got out on their own, I said, listen, all the grievances you have against me, if you need me to just sign something and say I did them, I'll go ahead and sign it. We don't have to argue about it. I know that I I probably wasn't the perfect parent. I did the very best that I could. All parents are imperfect, but some are a whole lot less perfect than others. But we're responsible, whether or not we have great parents, whether or not we have parents... Like Jacob, who was absent, who was distant, who refused to engage and to to be part of his kids' lives, who was so short-sighted that he showed favoritism to one son over the others, who took the easy route, the easy path. We have to look at our own lives and make sure that we don't pass down the dysfunction from one generation to the next. Oftentimes, we look at things we've heard the Bible say The Bible says the sins of the Father are passed down to the third and the fourth generation. The Bible does say that. It's in the Pentateuch, the first part of the Old Testament. But oftentimes we think it means that one man passes down sin to his sons or daughters who passes it down to their sons and daughters who passes it down. And so if we happen to have a bad dad, then it's gonna be three generations before we can even turn things around. And so we're, you know, messed up. And then our kids, not so good. And even their kids, so we just have to wait for that fourth generation and then they'll be okay. But the Bible doesn't talk about that at all. When the Bible's talking about the sins of the fathers, it's talking about government and corrupt nations and how when a nation becomes corrupt, It takes generations to take the corruption out of the nation, not about families. Everything can change in a supernatural instant. And when you and I choose to take responsibility for the people who we have influence around and over, everything about us, about them, our relationship, and the way they view the future can and will change. One of the ways that I feel we are failing our next generation, probably more significantly than any other way, is the fact that you and I can't keep our mouths shut. And we are negative and we complain and we're cynical and we're pessimistic. And we talk about how bad the world is and how bad the government is and about how bad our country's becoming and how things are falling apart and how there's not gonna be anything left. And one of the things that we're lacking is we're not passing down optimism to our kids. The world is full of challenges. But challenges bring opportunity. And don't let our failures dictate or characterize their view of their purpose, of their intentionality, of the fact that they're necessary. We owe our kids optimism. We owe them a biblical worldview. And sometimes you and I just need to keep our mouths shut because we can say on Sunday, God's in control we can come sit in church and we can worship and we can sing and then we go and we live the exact opposite from sunday at 1202 until the next sunday at 9 30 or whenever it is that we show back up at church and i'm telling you the next generations our kids other people's kids the children in our church they watch us live and if our lives don't match up to what they see or hear us say they don't believe it they're too smart and we have far too many kids who feel like they don't have a purpose, that there's no significance in meaning, that life is pointless. And I think a lot of that's our fault. And so we look at Jacob, and I'm begging for him to turn this around. I'm begging for him to intervene. But we see that even when his daughter was raped, all he cared about was the fact there may be some political tension with Shechem, and he didn't want his trade interrupted. That even though he had a son, Reuben, who slept with one of his girlfriends, he didn't do anything about it. And you say, well, he might not have known, but he did know, because at the end of his life, he was passing out blessings and curses to his boys, and he said, Reuben because you stepped out on me and you snuck upstairs and you inhabited my couch, which was a nice way of saying, you know, what he did. He said, I'm gonna put a curse on you. And the Bible says that Reuben from that point on, he faced indecision in his life and that he even passed that down through his parenting to his kids and that they were indecisive. And you see Joseph, a product of this environment, who was given something that he didn't ask for, but that he received and was stuck with and for a while it worked for him until it didn't. He was the favorite. His dad gave him a coat, and it was a fancy coat. It was a multicolored coat. It was a neon coat, a rainbow coat, and it showed that he was important, but it wasn't just the coat that showed he was important. It was the way this particular coat was constructed. This particular coat or robe went all the way down to the ankles, and it went all the way out to the wrists, and it was so ornate and so pretty that anyone who saw him knew that it wasn't a blue-collar working man's coat. This was a fancy boy coat. This was a boy who wasn't expected to lift anything, to plant anything, to herd anything, to chop any firewood, to work a day in his life. This was a kid who was enabled by his father to spend his entire life behind a computer screen, away from anybody else that mattered, not developing the character that he needed. Or the social skills and it worked for him until it didn't well the brothers were back as you heard our narrator back at Shechem and you remember Shechem because I told you that's where his sister was violated and his brothers went back and committed these acts of retribution so Jacob gets a little bit worried and he says Joseph I'm gonna try to trouble you son could you get out from behind the Xbox for a minute I got an Xbox. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to have an Xbox. I am saying it's a bad thing if all you do is sit behind the Xbox and don't do anything else. He says, son, can I trouble you? Could you get out from behind the Xbox for a minute and put down the controller? He said, listen, you can take the Lexus. Don't worry about, you know, taking, you know, your mom's car. Here, take my Lexus and stop by Five Guys and pick up some burgers. And I want you to drive out and check on your brothers. Now, I don't want you to get dirty, son. You know, after all, I mean, you're wearing your fancy coat. But I just want you to go by and make sure they're okay. You don't even have to stop. Just toss the burgers out the window, wave to them, tell them I said hi. Joseph's probably like, oh, Dad, you know, I've got to go. I've gotta, I'm in the middle of a game, Dad. He says, come on, just for your dad, just for your old dad, for old time's sake. Just, you know, go on. So he says, all right, I'll do it. He gets the car. There's not even gas in it, Dad. I've got to go to the gas station. So he goes and he gases up the Lexus, gets his fancy coat all smoothed out. Drives by five guys, pays with his mom's credit card, drives out to Shechem, sees his brothers, plans to just slow down, toss some burgers out the window, and his brothers see him coming. And they say, we hate that guy. Now, how bad can it be in your family when your brothers look at you and see you coming? Maybe they could see his fancy jacket in front of the windshield, you know, and he's driving with his arm out the window and see my jacket, no calluses on his hands, no sun had touched his face. The very sight of him. We hate that guy. So they hatched a plan. What was their plan? Well, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. That's the opposite of a brethren. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. That, as a preacher joke, it wasn't even that funny in my head. You got it, right? Cistern and, yeah. my Let's throw him into one of these cisterns that's a well and say that a ferocious animal devoured him then we'll see what comes of his dreams now you say "Well, what dreams i mean you remember our narrator i mean joseph had these crazy dreams that he overshared way overshared i'm gonna be the boss of you you're gonna have to worship me you guys are gonna have to get my stuff and you know go get my you know drinks out of the refrigerator and you'll have to do everything i want you to do and make my bed and they're like don't tell us that and he goes well god told me it was kind of obnoxious joseph wasn't perfect we're not perfect but he didn't have this coming You don't respond to entitlement, favoritism, and a little indiscretion and oversharing with murder. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So his brothers look at him and they say, we hate that guy, we're gonna kill him. And so they're like, hey, Joseph, stop, you know, come on over, have the five guys with us. And so he's like, hey, my brothers like me. So he stops to have five guys with him and they beat the tar out of him. These are some pretty ferocious dudes men in a man dress sleeves cut off cut right here at the thigh so they could move and fight sword-carrying men stripped his coat off beat him half to death and threw him in the well now Reuben the oldest brother he hatched a plan in his mind I think it's because he knew he was on his dad's bad side because he'd slept with his dad's girlfriend. The Bible doesn't say that, that's what I think. He said, this is my dad's favorite son. So in his mind, he said, I'm going to come back later after my brothers are gone. I'm going to get him out of the well and I'm going to take him to my dad and say, see, I've saved your favorite son. Everything's okay then, right? So they throw him in the well and they sit down and eat their five guys. Joseph in the well. Hey, I'm sorry. I mean, can you imagine? He didn't deserve it. One moment sitting in front of the PlayStation, not having to do a thing. Trust fund, baby. Nothing ahead of him but an easy downhill coast into life. The next minute in the bottom of a well. Here's his brothers talking. I don't know if we should kill him. Oh, we should kill him. He's a jerk. Didn't you hear the stories he told us? Didn't you hear the dreams? we got to kill him. And then they saw a band of traders not traitors, traitors on their way to Egypt. And they said, instead of killing him, after all, he's our flesh and blood, why don't we sell him? Well, selling him, that's a good idea. Now, a slave went for about 40 bucks, 40 pieces of silver. A good slave. But his brothers are having this conversation and they're saying... Joseph's not going to make a very good slave. Somebody's going to look at this kid and see he's never seen the sun. They're going to feel his hands and not see any calluses. They're going to know he had not done a day's worth of work in his life. We're going to sell him as a defective slave. We'll sell him half off. But can you imagine if I got sold as a slave, I'd want to go for 60 bucks. I mean, I'd want somebody to go, that guy right there is going to make a good slave. He's going to work. He's going to. But instead, they sold him as a, like a handicapped slave would be. So they drag him up out of the well saying, we're getting a discount for you. They sell him to this band of traders and he finds himself handcuffed, walking from Shechem to Egypt with the weight of his past on his shoulders, the injustice of growing up with a distant dad who set you up for failure, the fresh memory of a beating and brothers who decided to murder you. And he had to decide, am I going to react and hate and become bitter and wait for my chance to get even? Or am I going to respond with forgiveness and grace and optimism? I'm necessary. Intentional. There's purpose even though it doesn't look like there's a purpose he's chained walking to Egypt and he has to choose do I carry the offense do I carry the bitterness do I carry the grudges or do I forgive now you if you've been with me for a while we've been together you're like Rick you always talk about forgiveness would you stop talking about forgiveness and my answer is no I will not and this is the reason because you aren't listening (laughs) and I'm not mad at you about it I have the same problem this is what you're good at and the reason I'm saying you what I mean is we this is what we're good at we're good at nodding the head and going yeah Rick that's right that's what the Bible says we're good at acknowledging with our heads and not following through so I want to talk to you as we conclude once again about forgiveness and how forgiveness is a choice because with each step that joseph took from shechem to egypt as a young man some 17 years old looking at the rest of his life he had to choose how he was going to simply react or how he was going to respond and so do you let's look at forgiveness for a second Forgiveness is not saying that it was okay. Was it okay that Joseph's brothers beat him half to death, stripped him of his coat, and threw him in a well? No. Was it okay that they sold him into slavery? No. Was the offense real? Yes. So are yours. By me suggesting that we forgive, I'm not suggesting that what happened to you is okay. It's not. Forgiveness is not enabling bad behavior in other people. Their bad behavior sometimes has to stop. And by you choosing to forgive, it has very little to do with them and everything to do with you and how you respond. Forgiveness is not denying that a wrong was done in the first place. It's not waiting for an apology because apologies will never come Now, Joseph, this is fast forward into the end of the story, had a unique situation where he could have gotten his apologies if he wanted to at the very end, and he could have killed him. I mean, smited, smoted, smitten, wiped him off into the face of the earth, a grease spot with his thumb. But right now, do you think they were going to say they were sorry? No, they weren't sorry. They would have loved thinking that Joseph wanted them to say they were sorry. They would have enjoyed withholding their apology to make him miserable. Forgiveness has nothing to do with waiting for an apology, Forgiveness is not forgetting because we can't forget, we're human. I've shared this with you, it's my best analogy that I have, it's one that I employ in my own life and the reason I like it is because it works for me. I've shared it, I'll share it, I'll continue sharing it. Forgiveness is like throwing a rock. You take the offense, you take the wound, it's real, it hurt, it's bad, there's no doubt, And we take it and we say, God, I can't carry it anymore. It's no longer between me and that person. It's between you and that person. The weight is killing me. So with each step that Joseph took toward Egypt, he had to take that rock and he had to throw it as far as he could. And you know, some days, as I've shared with you, as I'm sharing with you, and as I will continue to share with you, You only throw the rock a few steps in front of you. And you got to pick it up and you got to chuck that rock again. And some days you throw that rock and you won't come up to that rock for weeks. And then there it is. And we have to choose. Do I pick it up and put it back in my pocket, on my shoulder? The weight, is it going to crush me? Or am I going to throw it again, saying, God, take it? Forgiveness is not stopping the feeling of pain. Pain gets better with time, but forgiveness doesn't make it go away. I want to tell you the truth uh, about this whole forgiveness thing. Sometimes it's so hard that when you really do it, it makes it worse for a little while. because in some selfish, sinful, reactionary kind of way, it feels like we're losing. It feels like we're letting the other person win. But the Bible tells us in Matthew, Jesus tells us that when you think you're on the way to worship, when you're on the way to meet with me, when you're on the way to church, when you're on the way to read the Bible, when you're on the way to pray, and you realize that there's unforgiveness in your heart, that there's something not right, this is what Jesus said. Stop what you're doing, go and make it right. Maybe it's with another person, maybe it's to God about another person. But Jesus said, stop right there, don't do anything else, don't walk away and get bitter, don't get entitled, don't hate. Don't blame God. Don't gather friends around who will enable and empower our unforgiveness and our bitterness. Stop and let it go. Throw the rock. And then pick up your offering and go back and connect. And the reason is, friends, it's a diverging trail. This is why now is when we have to do it. It's why today, in this moment, we have to find forgiveness because it's a diverging trail. And with each step that Joseph took, had he chosen bitterness and unforgiveness, his life and ours would never be the same. He chose uncommon faith and undeniably difficult situations by choosing to respond like Jesus. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It's not neglecting justice. Sometimes there are consequences, legal and otherwise. It's not trusting somebody again. You don't have to trust somebody again. It's not even reconciliation because for some people, it's unsafe or unwise for you to be around them. And as you gather the point here, forgiveness has very little to do with the other person and much more to do with us and our relationship with Jesus. In Matthew 18, we hear a story about a man who owed the government $100 million, And this guy only made about 100 grand a year. It was a really good salary, but he couldn't pay $100 million to the government. So they arrested him, and they said, you're going to jail for the rest of your life, and not only that, but your people are going to jail too. He threw himself at the mercy of the court. He said, at my salary, 100 grand a year, it's gonna take me five lifetimes to repay you. And the king, he said, you know what? Your debt's forgiven. Now the guy felt the weight of the world lifted off his shoulders. Destined for prison, he and his people, a debt he couldn't repay. All of a sudden, debt forgiven. And instead of this guy going and celebrating, he went and he found some guy that owed him $30,000. A lot of money, but it wasn't 100 million, friends. And I mean, he went right from court, right to this guy's house grabbed him by the neck and said, you pay me the money you owe me or I will throw you into prison and your wife and your kids. And everyone watching was like, what is going on with this guy? He was just forgiven so much. Has he forgotten in the steps that he's taken from the courthouse to this guy's house that he was forgiven so much? Why is he making this little thing such a big deal? Even our big things, even the biggest things, are little things in light of what Jesus has forgiven us from and for. And for those of us who have accepted Jesus' forgiveness for our sins, asking forgiveness and receiving it. Understanding this new life in Christ, wanting to live for Him and take steps of faith, it's inconceivable that we would choose unforgiveness and bitterness. Because a person who chooses that may not know the Father. So today is a diverging choice. The roads they fork. And friends, Indecision becomes decision over time. Inaction becomes action over time. And before we go through the next six weeks of Joseph's life, before we look at how he faces temptation next week, how he faces abandonment and being forgotten, how he deals with success and opportunity and then what he chooses to do the moment he can get revenge before we get there. You and I can't take these steps unless we take this one today. This is the on-ramp to uncommon faith and today's the day you decide. I know it's hard, but nothing makes you more like Jesus than choosing to forgive the
2: offenses done to you by others. Father, thank you for my friends